Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. Regina and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. And today's program is being is partnered with the Longevity Foundation in providing this program on non-small cell lung cancer for caregivers, practical tips for coping. And this is part three of living with non-small cell lung cancer. And today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, Decada Oncology, a grant from Genentech, an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, and made possible through an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have many of you on the program today. There's over 207 participants on the program today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Canada, Egypt, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, Mexico, Nepal, and the United Kingdom. So clearly this is a, a global call, and uh, we're delighted to have all of you on the program today. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Catherine Milham. And Dr. Milham is Chief of the Section of Thoracic Medical Oncology, Atrium Health Levine Cancer Institute, Clinical Associate Professor, Hematology and Oncology, Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Milham will be addressing an overview of non-small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID, Omicron, seasonal flu, and allergies, the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team, the caregiver's role in decision-making for a loved one with non-small cell lung cancer, challenges in communicating with the healthcare team, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments with technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Millam. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I'd like to just start um, by welcoming everyone. Um, this is certainly um, an area in which I'm passionate um, and have dedicated my career uh, to improving the care for anyone affected with lung cancer. You know, lung cancer is not uncommon, um, but it affects us and it changes us in different ways. And I'll start just by mentioning what we've experienced in the context of the COVID pandemic, as well as the um, seasonal viral um, illnesses such as influenza, as well as allergies. Now, I think we learned that um, through COVID that many people uh, had abnormal imaging if, if they had a cough, congestion, fever, diagnosed with COVID, or maybe even had symptoms related to COVID that turned out to be a different viral presentation. And in many instances, we were um, diagnosing lung cancer 
during um, these times when there were abnormal images. Also, one of the things that I notice as a medical oncologist is that um, we diagnose lung cancer um, in that post-viral season when people who have had cough, congestion, flu, whether that's related to illness or seasonal allergies, and these symptoms are persisting and uh, imaging is completed and demonstrates something that is not anticipated ultimately diagnosing a lung cancer. My main message there is that, you know, listen to your body, know your body, advocate for yourself, talk with your physician. Um, you know, we were able to um, treat lung cancer during COVID um, and we have continued to care for people at high levels. So we don't want um, illnesses to limit our ability to to be um, providers. Now, I, it's important to remember that cancer, um, lung cancer is one that starts in the lungs and has the potential to spread to other parts of the body. And important for not only patients, but also care providers, there is no blame and no shame in this diagnosis. Anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. So our energy is best spent on forward movement. We don't focus on the past. Rather than why did this happen, we need to change that question and say, what can we do about it? And when we shift that motivation, then we can be more productive. There are many things that we can do to treat lung cancer. Uh, there have been advancements in surgical techniques using robotics, radiation techniques, even using proton therapy, and systemic treatments, not just a backbone of chemotherapy, but shifting that backbone to targeted therapy and immunotherapy. And a caregiver is truly one of the most important roles in the management of lung cancer. And there is great success when communication with the team is well established. I'd like to share my perspective as a medical oncologist and what I think allows a caregiver to be successful and um, in providing that care to somebody with lung cancer. First of all, make sure that we can communicate with you. We need to know that you're the point of contact. We need more than one means of communication. So if it's a telephone, we also need an email. Uh, we need to know what's uh, preferred. And it should be documented in the health record. One of the things that's important is just remember to empty your voicemail box. It seems so simple, but um, being able to communicate and, and reach somebody is important. And when that phone number is listed, we need to know that it is okay that the patient has approved that it is okay for that care provider to receive that protected information. If that's not documented, then we are hesitant to share that protected information. And it, it brings into context the importance of updating a healthcare power of attorney. Uh, if that's not been completed, it's a great time to take the opportunity to do those documentations, to designate somebody, to speak on somebody's behalf and have that stand into the chart. I see different mechanisms for care providers um, to document what they're learning. 
to be present in an appointment. Sometimes we're limited in being able to be physically present, but through telephone and video and FaceTime, we can have uh, our care providers always present and um, listening and asking questions. I think journaling the old-fashioned way, pen and paper, is invaluable. Taking notes, uh, we know that people don't remember uh, the majority of our appointments, and so jotting some notes down throughout is very helpful and a great reference uh, for later, not just for you, but when family members uh, ask for updates. Know your team as a care provider and identify a contact person. It's easier to have one central person within the oncology team that you can have as a go-to rather than having to call a nurse, a nutritionist, and have multiple phone numbers. Uh, establish one contact person. Is that a navigator? Is it the nurse practitioner? When I think of how a care provider provides excellent care, um, it's through communicating that management. There are four things that when um, I'm communicating with a care provider, I wanna make sure that they have. And one is a calendar. Uh, there are a lot of different you know, electronic platforms that somebody may be receiving appointments and messages. I think just a good old fashioned printed calendar is the best way to stay organized. Medication management is the second one. Having a medication list and really a calendar specific for medication administration. The care provider is, is not just providing carpool often, but also administering the medications and remaining organized is um, instrumental to success. The third that I think about is nutrition. Oftentimes the care provider is the one that is providing the meals and reminders to stay on top of nutrition. And then fourth is activity and safety. And activity may not just be exercise and staying mobile. It may be just ensuring that there are safe transfers to and from the bed, to and from the vehicle, and throughout the home. A care provider um, should absolutely communicate if something isn't working, if something's changed. And also if there's something that we should all celebrate to be successful. If the team doesn't know about it, it cannot be addressed. And I would say that that communication can be very, um, very complicated as to when you as the care provider should be sharing that. In my opinion, as soon as you think it's important, it's important to us. But also I would just um, you know, like to focus on some of the challenges in being able to communicate that effectively. So when somebody goes in for an appointment with their medical oncologist, let's be honest, we all know that there's limited time and providers have an agenda for what they need to accomplish during that time. Oftentimes we're looking for side effects and um, laboratory assessments. We may wanna review scans. We wanna figure out how we can optimize um, treatment, and um, many times a patient or their care provider have their own agenda, and they may have certain questions that they need to ask. So it's important 
to ask the team how they like to address these questions. Is it best done in between appointments, through electronic communications, through health record um, question portals? Is it with an additional appointment? Should we have an in-between appointment to have side effect assessments and care um, improvement appointments? Um, should we provide a heads up so that the oncologist knows um, key information that um, needs to be addressed? Another thing that's important for care providers to communicate is just your own limitations. Um, what seems simple is actually very complicated and can be overwhelming. We want to make sure that we're identifying resources and we want to make sure you're giving yourself your own break. Remember, you are doing a great job. This is hard. It's a lot of responsibility. You need to ask for help and give yourself grace. Caregivers have a, you know, the potential for roles in decision making for a loved one. My recommendation is communicate, communicate often communicate with the patient, and then back to the team. Don't be afraid to ask uncomfortable questions. It will help you feel more confident when you do need to make decisions. Some of the hardest decisions may be around safety, and this can be taxing even on the healthiest relationships. There'll be a lot of give and take, and so we have to compromise but not blame. And, um, and just make sure that you're thinking about yourself in these process. Don't worry about if it seems like an annoying request. And there's challenges, again, in, in communicating all of those needs with the healthcare team. When you have that contact, know the person's schedule. For example, is the contact that you're using the same one that you should be using at nights and weekends? And if you need to go seek additional care, such as an urgent care emergency department, what is the recommendation of the team? Ask those questions up front. And if, you've, if you're having challenges communicating with the team, express that. Let them know that you need some communication back if there's a delay. And ask if you can have an additional appointment and set those expectations. We know that telehealth revolutionized our ability to communicate during COVID. This will evolve again with the end of the COVID Emergency Act that occurred on May 11, 2023. During COVID, we had opportunities to have telephone visits and video visits, in addition to in-person visits. With the end of the COVID emergency, I expect this to change. We're excited about a return to more in-person appointments, and we need to embrace that opportunity. We can still communicate through telephone and video, but I think that you can expect many teams requesting a return to in-person appointments. So ask what services can still be done through telehealth, but then also maximize that resource utilization when you're there in person. It may provide an opportunity to meet with a social worker, a nutritionist, or even one of your other providers in the care. Make sure that you prepare that list of questions and discussion points. And again, know that there may be differences in timing when these can be addressed. Time is a challenge, and so if it's not being addressed necessarily during that appointment, identify a, a mechanism to make sure that those are still being questioned uh, and answered. 
And it may not be that it's being overlooked or deprioritized. It just may need a different time and a different form for it to be addressed. In my practice, I may distribute questions to others who are better poised to answer them. But I will let people know that their second question will need to be addressed at the next appointment and provide an explanation as to why. Maybe we need more information. Maybe we need updated scans. And that ability to maybe not answer the question at times, but set the expectation and that calendar management is key. So I'd just like to say there's so many things that the care provider is tasked with. And I think communication and organization are really important components in just feeling more confident in the role and, um, and then providing yourself time and grace within the space. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Milam. That was just a superb presentation. Um, excellent. You really set the stage for today's program. And you shared so many important things for caregivers to know and to think about. I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Milam. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Charlotte Ferenz. And Ms. Ferenz is an oncology social worker, and she's our lung cancer coordinator for cancer care. And Ms. Ferenz will be addressing taking on the role of a caregiver, what research tells us about caregivers, challenges, rewards of caregiving, coping with each day on special occasions and birthdays, managing family and friends and long-distance caregiving, and self-care tips for managing the stress of caregiving. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ferenz. Thank you so much for allowing me to share on this call today. We'll get started and talk a little bit about who takes on the role of a caregiver and what that research tells us about these people. I know we've got listeners from around the globe here, so the research in this section is focused on the U.S., but much of these themes remain similar throughout different areas of the world. The metaphor that I use most often to discuss a new diagnosis of cancer is that it's reacting to that cancer becomes a full-time job with no training in a new medical language that no one's choosing purposefully and is often feared. And that metaphor holds for patients and caregivers. So let's take a look at who gets thrust into this full-time job. We're seeing partners, children, parents, spouses, neighbors, and community members all finding themselves becoming a lung cancer caregiver. And through all of these relationships, we see caregivers of different ages as well. Studies show that young adult caregivers often have a higher stress level, worries about feeling unprepared in a medical setting, and often are one of several caregivers for a person with cancer. These young adults balance needing to communicate with larger families involved in care who might have different communication styles and often feel isolated from peers who aren't involved in caregiving activities. On the other side of things, there are older adults who are often caring for a loved one with lung cancer while navigating their own health concerns, changing social involvement. These older adult caregivers may have fewer people to involve in care decisions, but more people to inform the news and the consequences of those care decisions. They also come with more understanding of certain health systems and practical needs from past caregiving responsibilities. So I want to look at what some of those responsibilities might be. 
Caregivers in the United States are anywhere from three to six million adults providing unpaid support to someone close to them with cancer. And that support averages around 33 hours a week. And this can be anything from practical support, cleaning, doing the laundry, cooking, driving to and from appointments, or to emotional support, calling to check in, stopping by for meals, accompanying patients to houses of worship. These roles of a caregiver are often defined by the relationship to the person with cancer, but others are defined by proximity and location, and that can be a hard thing to balance. As we just talked about, caregivers have a huge impact on patient decisions with involvement on where to get treatment, the treatment plan, if a second opinion is helpful. It's important to hold space for that when we look at the fact that more than two-thirds of cancer caregivers have stress about treatment decisions. Managing that stress and accessing caregiver support services can make those conversations more fruitful and easier to navigate over time. There's also cultural differences in caregiving traditions and expectations, which make it important for caregivers and patients to talk with one another about what is expected and what is feasible. Some communities view caregiving as a necessity for the family. Others view it as something that can be outsourced. Starting the caregiving role with an understanding of what is hoped for can be helpful, though these are conversations that can be had at any point. And as with most of the cancer experiences, there are going to be real challenges in those communications and some rewards when it comes to caregiving. The role of being a lung cancer caregiver is filled with challenges and the changing role of how you relate to the person with cancer, sudden added responsibilities, even the financial cost of not being able to work a second job, take time off from a primary job, or increased fuel costs can add to those stress levels. There are caregivers who may be young adults suddenly caring for the person who cared for them, spouses responsible for household chores for decades, now shifting their obligations in the home, and neighbors who maybe had never been so close receiving a really personal inside look into someone's health. With a lung cancer diagnosis, caregivers are often put in a position of mitigating stigma, explaining that this cancer is no one's fault, as no cancer is anyone's fault, and protecting both the patient and the caregiver from those insensitive comments that can arise after a cancer diagnosis. The saying that the lung cancer community finds themselves using now, I know we've heard it once on the call already, is that anyone who has lungs can get lung cancer and there's no blame or fault for someone who does. Caregivers to those with lung cancer have also found themselves in an increased position of stress in recent years with the COVID-19 pandemic, facing additional challenges of caring for someone with a possibly lowered immune system, balancing the risk of socialization with the loss that comes from isolation. Caregivers also share that they hold the emotional pressure of saying the right thing. And we know that there is a huge amount of pressure on caregivers to be emotional support for patients. What's the right thing to say when someone navigates side effects from treatment? Or what's the best thing to say if a patient is contemplating treatment changes? The answer, unsatisfyingly, is that there is no singular best thing. There are, thankfully, so many things that caregivers know about their loved ones, and that's what we lean on for questions like that. 
knowing how the person in your life reacts to support, what comforts them, what soothes them, or what inspires them, are all where caregivers are able to shift that feeling of stress over the unknown, or what should someone say, to shifting into the confidence in the history of the relationship, what have you said or done before that's proven helpful in other scenarios. All of this isn't to say that there are no rewards to being a caregiver. Sometimes the rewards are easier to ignore. They're so often incorporated into the challenges or they're quieter moments that don't get the attention and visceral physical reaction as some of the difficulties. Caregivers can experience a profound sense of satisfaction at working toward a shared goal with the patient and achievement in getting additional support or validation. There are also rewarding and deepening relationships with the patient. We see spouses talking about topics they haven't in decades. Adult children caring for a parent who are connecting around stories, shared hobbies, life lessons. Deepening understanding of shared values can yield richer and close relationships with the patient. There is also an opportunity for self-growth and personal growth, even as the difficulties of being a caregiver can wear on a person. I don't say this lightly, the idea of growing in partnership with a patient in compassion or growing in confidence of ability to respond to those needs is complex. It's not a silver lining that reduces the reality of stressors, but a companion to that stress at times, the awareness that caregivers are continuing to live a life that has opportunity for laughter, learning, and connection. I want to talk a little bit about how to cope with some of those opportunities to companion stress and celebration, coping with special occasions and birthdays. I usually first suggest starting from a place of flexibility, the idea that not everything on that list might get accomplished, and that's okay. So then being able to prioritize what's important to the patient, what's important to the caregiver, and having those conversations around holidays or special occasions be more of a group effort. There is, of course, prioritization of the patient in so much of this experience. It is their experience living with a lung cancer diagnosis. That being said, this is also a caregiver's experience living with caring for a loved one with lung cancer. And that, too, takes some prioritization and care. Communicating with the healthcare team can be another way to help balance the medical needs and the social needs during special occasions. Some caregivers and patients ask the medical team, you can do this months in advance, if the goal is to mitigate side effects for a particularly special day or trip, how can schedules be adjusted safely or meetings held with palliative teams to prepare for possible side effects? Planning in advance of these days can require holding two truths at once, though, how to plan for spontaneity or prepare for the unknown so that you feel like you know what to do. And that's challenging. Give yourself time to figure out a plan and permission to change that plan at any moment. I want to talk a little bit about managing family and friends in long-distance caregiving, too. One thing in long-distance caregiving is that the rise of technology has often made it possible for people to be involved in the care plan who live out of town, out of state, or even out of the country. There are some specific ways that long-distance caregivers can and do provide support to a person with lung cancer, 
in some ways that that support might require additional effort and communication. I know we've talked a little bit about technology and the ease that that's made to, to involve themselves in the medical team. Also, having access, though, to emotional support services for caregivers can be challenging for long-distance caregivers, as some support services might not be available from the treatment center if it's out of state or not in their location. Local caregiver groups might be difficult to find access to, so there are, thankfully, a variety of lung cancer caregiver support services online and peer matching over the phone to someone who's also caring for a loved one with a similar type of lung cancer can provide that more one-on-one -on -one understanding and support around caring from a distance. It's important in long-distance caregiving to manage expectations, to build open and honest communication. So much of the caregiving experience depends on knowing what unmet needs a patient has and what capacity the caregiver has to manage those. Long-distance caregivers who leave their work, families, and their own homes to become in-person caregivers for short or extended travel can have additional stress over, stressors over not being able to merge those two parts of their life. I want to just go through a few quick tips for managing stress and self-care. The first is developing a self-care menu, writing down activities you can do if you have one minute, five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, so that you've got a list of options. Number two is journaling, giving yourself permission to be honest in your writing. And knowing that you can journal about something at a later time allows you to focus in the present moment easier. Number three, some members will take up new hobbies that are repetitive in nature, meditation, walking, knitting, something soothing that provide some emotional scaffolding that can help during especially stressful moments. Number four, focusing on a nighttime routine that allows for nurture of the self. I like to check in on sleep patterns in caregivers if people find themselves with disrupted sleep because of patient needs or stress levels, to talk with their own medical team and to talk with local respite agencies, whether that's a local area agency on aging or the United Way, different ways to find support in those evening hours. And number five, asking for specific care needs that you yourself might want, a meal cooked or someone to come over and help clean. It's not always possible to self-care your way through caregiving, and that's an important acknowledgement in this. The idea of community care and additional support is built into these conversations. I don't suggest self-care as a way to eliminate the pressures and burden of being a caregiver, but to accompany those pressures and challenges so that you're better able to cope in those moments. It doesn't fix all the work that being a caregiver involves, but you do deserve to take a breath sometimes, to be cared for and supported. And if the person providing that support is a group, a family member, or your own self, I want to remind you all here on the call for caregivers that you are worth it, and we're so glad that you took this time to carve out of your schedules. I'll hand it back to Dr. Messner now. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. France. That was really just a, a wonderful presentation, and you covered a lot of issues that caregivers um, cope with and, and, um, and give them a lot of excellent tips. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is um, is Kristen Cox Santiago, and uh, Ms. Santiago will be a senior director of Cancer Partner Initiatives Longevity Foundation, 
and she will be addressing Longevity Foundation's free programs and services and Lung Cancer Helpline and their info line as well as their website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Santiago. Thank you very much um, for the opportunity to share some of the services that Longevity has to offer. And thank you to everyone who is participating. Um, like Charlotte said, this really is self-care. It might not feel like self-care, but it's really important that you're taking the time to um, listen and learn and share and ask questions. So um, thank you very much. Longevity Foundation is a lung cancer nonprofit advocacy foundation that's dedicated to providing support uh, to people diagnosed with lung cancer as well as their care partners. Um, in addition to the educational resources that we provide, we also have a, a strong research focus as well as policy, um, trying to improve the care, diagnosis, treatment, um, whole experience that people go through when someone has a, a diagnosis of lung cancer. Um, so I'll start by saying we have a ton of educational information on our website. So it's longevity.org, L-U-N-G-E-V-I-T-Y.org. Um, but today I really just want to focus on the services that are mainly run by our survivorship and support team, um, as those are the ones who interact most with the, the people diagnosed with lung cancer and their care partners. Um, many of the individuals on that team have been caregivers, have sat in your seats. Um, and they're also certified navigators and oncology nurses. So these are people who really know what you're going through from a, from a personal as well as a professional um, experience that can help navigate and get people to the right resources. Um, I will start by saying that we do have a partnership with Cancer Care, which is our helpline, and everything that we offer is free. Um, but the helpline is staffed by oncology social workers, and again, it's through Cancer Care. The phone number is 844-360-5864. It's 844-360-5864. And the social workers specializing in oncology are really there to help with any kind of practical, practical assistance, financial assistance, or counseling assistance um, to really answer any questions and connect you to whatever resources or organizations um, such as longevity that you might need um, or would benefit from. One of the, the next programs um, or resources that we offer, I personally am incredibly passionate about, but it's our peer support programs. Um, and this, this was mentioned um, by, by Charlotte as well, but we have what's called our lifeline support partners. And if you call or email our organization, um, we can connect people to similar people who are going through the same circumstances, basically. So it can be caregiver to caregiver. It can be patient to patient. It can be people who live in the same city, same specific type of lung cancer. But really developing that, that bond and partnership to help each other out. I think me personally, like having that lifeline when you can text someone in the middle of the night if you're going through something and they can text back. That's kind of how I envision this program. Um, but it's our lifeline support partner program. Um, and I, again, it's for people diagnosed with cancer, with lung cancer, as well as care partners or caregivers. I think that's a really great way as well of kind of focusing on self-care to reach out and say, hey, I, I need help. Or like, oh, this is so exciting. Let's celebrate. So um, that's something I would look into as well. Um, 
and I, I feel like I'm throwing a lot of phone numbers and emails out to you all, so I apologize to that. But if you email our main email line, it's info, like I-N-F-O, at longevity.org, L-U-N-G-E-V-I-T-Y.org. With any questions, we can direct you to the right people in our foundation to help answer questions or get you connected to a, a Lifeline support partner. Um, we also have clinical trial ambassadors, which are people who've gone through the clinical trial experience and can help um, speak about their experiences, which is just another nice service to have. Um, we have a very robust online community, which again, I, I think is self-care. Um, we have a lot of Facebook groups, many are specific to uh, the type of lung cancer diagnosis that people have. We have um, patient gateways, which is a relatively new thing that we're doing. Um, it's kind of like Facebook, but it's more involved, more interactive. Uh, for the, the non-small cell lung cancer, it's nsclc.longevity.org, nsclc.longevity.org. And then there's a few others that might be of interest if you just go to gateway.longevity.org. You can pull those up um, and see which one might, might fit best for, for your needs. Um, we also have meetups. So it's something beautiful that came out of COVID, I would say. But we have Zoom meetups, um, I think they're once a month for different, um, different groups. Um, based on the type of lung cancer or, or certain needs. So for caregivers, we have one every fourth Thursday of each month at 8 p.m. Um, and you can find that information from longevity.org. But again, you can also email the info at longevity.org if, if you have trouble finding it on the website. Um, but those are really great. And I think taking time to step away and being with people who are going through what you're being with is invaluable. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful community that has developed. Um, and then we also have conferences. So I think two weeks ago, we had our big HOPE conference in um, Rockville, Maryland. And I think there are around 350 people there, and I think maybe 50 or 60 caregivers, which is really wonderful, again, for people to come together, share what they're going through, and share their experiences. Um, so I would, the next big one in person is going to be next year, but we also have an International Lung Cancer Survivorship Conference, and I think it's in October, but that information, again, is on our website. Um, and then I think the last, the last thing I would also throw out there or pitch is our action network. So trying to take your experiences to influence policy. So if you go to action.longevity.org, you can learn more about that. But it's, it's your personal stories and um, experiences that change policy that can make things better for, for the caregiver as well as the person that they're caring for. Um, so just quick, I'm going to throw the numbers out again. The, the uh, Longevity um, Helpline staffed by uh, Cancer Care is 844-360-5864. And if you have any questions about the services that Longevity offers, it's info at longevity.org. Um, our website is longevity.org. Um, and then my email, if you have any follow-up questions, is k santiago at longevity.org. But um, 
I'm really, I'm really happy. Oh, and the gateway and nsclc.longevity.org. Sorry for throwing all that out there, but I'm sure we can find a way to email it to y'all. Um, but thank you for taking the time to be here. Um, and thank you for all that you're doing to care for your person that you're caring for. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Santiago. That was excellent. And I, um, I want to just acknowledge to everybody that this was a wonderful presentation and that all the numbers and information that websites or anything that we mentioned, any speaker has mentioned at any time during the call, even during the Q&A as well, we will be sending you not just, uh, we'll all be getting a Survey Monkey from us in a couple of days. The Survey Monkey will include an evaluation of the program, but it also will include all of the websites, telephone numbers, information that was given out during the call, and some other things as well. So um, it is, although you're getting an evaluation, you're also getting all of the resources that have been given out during the program. So thank you so much, Ms. Santiago. That was excellent. And we'll, I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And uh, I'm Carolyn Nestor. I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care's free programs and services. And so please get your questions ready for the Q&A, which we'll move, move to very quickly. Um, Cancer Care uh, has a number of free programs and services, and many people call our Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673, and uh, they speak to an oncology social worker because um, we're really staffed by oncology social workers, and they will pick up the phone when you call. There's no wait time, and they will address your questions. So what are some of the questions that people ask? Usually a person has a very specific question when they ask, so that question is addressed and then the oncology social worker goes over all the services that we offer. I'm going to mention some of them. Um, we, we offer practical financial and co-payment assistance to people in the United States. Um, we also offer online support groups. And um, we have um, people who offer resource navigation. We have something called coping circles, support groups with information. We offer these programs, about 80 per year, and we also offer a, a number of publications. And to get all of our resources, you can go to our website, www.cancercare.org, and you'll be able to get all of those resources from uh, everything that we offer to Cancer Care. And so for those of you who are maybe international and looking for resources in your country, we will be able to provide that information to you. So not to be concerned that um, because you're listening from another country that there would be no resources for you. We do have, our staff would be able to provide some resources for you as well. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Regina to explain to all of you that queue up for questions. Regina. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is a question actually that came in um, uh, for Dr. Mileham, if you are four months into treatment, is it problematic to skip a treatment? It's a great question, and I think it's one um, that's important to discuss with your oncologist and family. Um, you know, so many times it's not about how long you've been on treatment, but what are the other situations in which are influencing that question. Is it because there's an important vacation? Is it because there's an important milestone? Is it due to side effects? Or um, is it due to unmet needs where we can accentuate other resources? So 
So it's, it's the right question to ask, not just at four months, but at nine months, at three weeks, depending on the circumstances um, to which that applies. Thank you so much. And another question for you as well. Um, do I have to consider the same precautions outside of the home as my husband? Because I live with him, I worry about bringing something home. Mm. That's stressful, right? And I think that um, these are questions we often get. It's not just from a spouse or a care provider, but it may be children or it may be people that want to love and snuggle with their grandchildren and their snotty noses. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a question we get often. Um, I think, you know, we've learned so much through the COVID pandemic and we do things differently than we did before during times of, you know, other respiratory viral seasons such as influenza or RSV. Um, we've learned how to be uh, safer for ourselves and others in our home environment, but we've also learned where we can still enjoy each other um, with decreased precautions. I think a lot of it has to do with what are the circumstances in which you're living. Um, you know, I think it's for people that are have known exposures to any kind of illness and um, how do you be safe? Can, you know, should you, um, if you've had an exposure to somebody at work or in your other social environment that's ill, you know, do you want to wear a mask in the house for a few days just to ensure that you're okay? I, I think it's a, it's really an evolving um, situation such that there's no right or wrong. Um, but I think what's really important is that we continue to share our love with the people that surround us. So, you know, one of the things we also learned during COVID is how much we missed family and friends, and particularly when you are touched with cancer, um, you know, that contact remains very important. So we still need to be with our family and friends, but we've learned ways that we can do that successfully and, and more safely. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Ms. Ferenz. How does, a, this is a bit of a long question, I'll read it, and if you could address it, um, I think it will probably help many on the call. How does a caregiver balance their emotions when the patient is having a difficult day? I have a tendency to shut down emotionally, to hold space for her, to feel comfortable expressing her fears. Should I share my emotions with her or simply be there with her? when she needs to break down in a safe way. So if you can address the question in a general way, I think that would be very helpful to this participant and probably to many on the call as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a common question and there's two parts to it. The first part is that you get to ask the person who's the patient or having that breakdown, what do you need right now? Because I can meet you there in that emotion or I can sit and hold this emotion as a container. And so there's no answer that I can give that's going to answer categorically for you, the person in your life with cancer. But even knowing that you're thinking about that can be helpful to someone in helping them ground and soothe. I think the other component is that most of the time in this society, when we're faced with big emotions and hard conver conversations, we kind of lean back and say, ooh, 
that's a lot. I don't know what to do. And so I, I invite people to lean into those moments to partner with their person with cancer and say, I hear you. I see that you're so upset because this is upsetting and give them that validation and support that throughout the rest of your life together, you know how to do to lean in to those hard moments and really look at how you can support them as an individual and offer to them, I've got my own feelings here that I can, you know, talk to you about at a later date or talk to you about right now. Where are you at? How can we get through this together? So I think sometimes that's helpful, though certainly if you're, you know, person is really just wanting to, to focus on them or focus on you, that can always fluctuate there. But I, I hope that that helps. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Ms. Santiago, um, a question about advocacy. Um, so um, what is the best way to advocate for the patient with healthcare team um, if you, when they feel they are losing their independence? And I'm sure you have programs at Longevity Foundation for this. So I, I think this is brought up earlier. One, I would say be a little aggressive with the healthcare team um, and to make sure that they know that you are the primary caretaker or you're the one who's going to help navigate the system for, for the person you're caring for. Um, I think it's really, really important to do that and to make sure that all the documentation is put in place so that they can share the, and if, you're, if the person you're caring for is open to it, right, that they can share um, the health information and to help make appointments and figure out what's best. And um, I, I don't know that longevity has specific um, resources, but I, I think also going back to the peer, peer-to-peer -peer lifeline support partners, talking to people who've gone through it. Um, but I, I do think uh, it's a delicate balance because the, the person with the diagnosis of lung cancer may not necessarily want someone all up in their, their space and asking all the questions. But unfortunately, I think in our healthcare system right now, you have to be aggressive advocates for each other. Okay, thank you. Um, Ask the questions, all the hard questions, and write it down. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. And um, for Dr. Milham, um, with COVID still out there, how do we enjoy life while protecting ourselves? We are afraid to do anything with more than a couple of people that we know well. We are older and retired and want to travel, etc. Even though we are fully vaccinated, we are overcome with fear that either, of our, either one of us will contract COVID. Any suggestions on how to do this? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's challenging. I think it's a start small um, concept such that you can gain confidence in your surroundings. Um, there, you know, depending on where you live, um, you know, if it's springtime, there are more, and we have longer days, you have more opportunities for outdoor um, activities and travel that allows you to um, enjoy um, outdoor accommodations. And so then you can have uh, greater levels of comfort being unmasked and being around people that where there's good ventilation um, areas to be in smaller crowds. And so I think it's about starting small and gaining confidence in your own execution of, of these vacations and, and time that you can enjoy 
I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I've traveled with a mask uh, during winter seasons well before COVID. I'm busy. I work. I have kids. Um, and, you know, I have loved ones that are, you know, that have been in immune-compromised situations. And so for me, uh, it was very normal to me to travel wearing a mask even prior to COVID. And so I think that a lot of that's been normalized. Um, that if you are in a confined situations that um, that in which you're still not comfortable being unmasked, that you can do that. Um, so I, I think that there are opportunities um, to continue to again start small, explore, gain confidence, um, and have and try and you know find areas where you can have fun and create memories. Excellent. Thank you. Um... And um, so this um, for uh, Ms. Renz, how does a caregiver avoid getting lost in the caregiving and prevent caregiving from becoming so much about the cancer care that the relationship between the caregiver and the patient degrades? That's a really important question and I think speaks to the skill of scheduling and of prioritizing that the caregivers often have of saying, you know, in next week, we'll both go to this appointment. Next month, we'll do this. In three months, there'll be a scan. All of these conversations about scheduling um, can involve also when was the last time the two of us sat and had a meal together? When is the next time that we're going to go for a walk outside? When is the next time that, you know, in three months, can we take a weekend together where we, you know, exist in the home or have a call together? So scheduling in room, and I know I spoke lightly about this, but scheduling in room for spontaneity or room for self-care can look really, you know, schedule heavy at the start of it and then becomes in practice a part of the caregiving experience is to also continue and build that relationship that you have with the person with cancer. So putting that on equal priority as getting them to their next chemo appointment as also getting them to a you know, a conversation or, or room to grow together as whether it's a romantic relationship or other caring relationships to really build in togetherness and to build in some alone time as well for you, if that might be what's needed. Excellent. Thank you. And I'm going to ask each of you just to um, provide a takeaway for our participants for today's program. This has been an extraordinary program. I must say that we, although we've done this program before, I must say that um, we've, uh, it's the questions have been really excellent and our the participants speakers have been terrific as well so it's uh kudos to both because it's just been a really extraordinary program so i'm going to start with dr milham and then Ms. Ferenz and then Ms. santiago so um, dr milham if you'd like to say something um just a takeaway that you'd like people to have for this um for today's program yeah, I think from the medical oncology perspective, um, you're an invaluable resource as a care provider. We appreciate you and um, just have so much gratitude to whatever capacity you can provide in that, in that care providing role. Um, utilize the resources at hand, communicate your needs, and communicate uh, what you're not sure that you do need, um, and just you know, live with live with grace. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Milham. That was wonderful. And um, Ms. Ferenz? I think being able to recognize that even though you have this role and this new identity of a caregiver, that you are worthy and deserving of accepting care and asking for care from someone else. Figuring out how to do that is the complex part, but as long as we're coming back to the really simple statement of you deserve support, for all that that entails can be really helpful to come back to every now and then. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. And Ms. Santiago? Hi. I, I was just trying to pull up something on my computer, and I apologize for not having it um, put together. But I think self-care, you need to prioritize yourself, which everyone says, and it's, like, impossible to do. Um, but you can't put on someone else's oxygen mask if yours isn't on. Um, and I think really leaning into the peer-to-peer -peer support or finding your, your people who you can just reach out to and get energy from is great. Um, and then I was trying to pull up the quote and I can't find it, but it's basically there's like three people in this world or four. Those have been, who have been caregivers, those who have been cared for and those who will be a caregiver someday. I, I totally botched it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone knows it, but I just think that like we're all here to help each other and we need to be helped by others. So you're doing your job now and someone will have you when the time comes. I think that's lovely. And thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. That's wonderful. I think you got it. And I think we all understand what you're saying. Uh, thank you so much. Again, I want to thank our speakers, and I also want to thank all of our participants. Um, been remarkable in today's program. And I realize that uh, we may have not gotten to everyone's questions just because there were so many questions on the call. We couldn't get to all of them. So I want to comment on the questions. Um, so. If, uh, if you got to ask a question, or if you have a question yet to ask, you're in queue for a question, um, please take all your questions back to your treating healthcare team with what you've learned today. Um, your healthcare team consists of your oncologist, but also consists of your oncology social worker, your oncology nurse, financial navigator, patient navigator, so many different members of your team that can help you. So no matter what your issue is, your team may be able to help you, so don't, don't be reluctant to ask a question of your team. Also, always find out when your team is available um, on weekends, holidays, and um, weekends, holidays, weekends and holidays, and evenings, because it seems like those are the times when people seem to have issues. <laughs> so just ask them, who's on call? Who do I call when, on these particular times? So it's weekends, uh, evenings, and holidays. That seems to be the time when it's very hard to get help when you're kind of struggling with some issue that is a concern to you. Um, I, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all just a very fine day, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.